morning, everybody. Yeah, it's good to see you all this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I would love to have you uh, take them out and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, or you can turn on your Bibles and turn to Ephesians, however you would like. We're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 3 to 11. And so we're just going to read our text for the morning. And uh, how, about, uh, how about if we read it together? It's a, it's a little bit longer uh, to read together, but I think we can, I think we can manage this. So let's, uh, let's read God's Word together. Here we go. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity in all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. God, thank you for your word to us. We thank you that it is, is life and it is our, um, uh, just our, our direction that we need to, to find you. We gather this morning to be recentered on you, to just find, um, God, to, to find through our way through all of the fog and all of the, the static of life, all of the competing voices and allegiances we, we choose uh, this morning to just to fix our eyes on you. And so we know, God, that you, you love to reveal yourself to us. You love to make yourself known that when we draw close to you, you draw close to us. So we trust that. We trust your heart. And uh, God, we open ourselves to whatever uh, you have in store for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. 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 Ah. So we have some baptisms today. How about that? That's about as exciting as it gets, right? This new life in Christ. Could I, you're going to have to like stand up and um, a little bit later this afternoon, if you're being baptized, will you forgive me, William? Will you, if you're being baptized, could you just stand so we can just like, maybe you're feeling nervous. Would you stand up? Feeling, would you give him a hand? So, I, awesome. Beautiful. Very cool. Oh, so great. I'm guessing, uh, so, so the enemy doesn't like to lose ground in our lives or in, in a, um, in a community, and so I've often noticed in my life, like either right before or right after I take a really significant step of faith, where I feel like God is leading me to this, and I say yes, it feels like there, you know, it just, 
There are things that are hard, and the enemy um, can sort of come against us in, in those ways. And so pray for each other. Would you, would you pray for these folks who are being baptized? Just surround them with, with love and, and care and support. Uh, this, this journey that we're on, we make personal decisions, but it's never individual. You're never on the journey by yourself. You're surrounded by a, a community of faith, a church family that, that loves you. And there is nothing greater than getting to watch Jesus transform a life. I mean, there's nothing more thrilling than that, to just watch Jesus at work transforming our lives. And we're in a series right now, we're just kind of beginning this for the fall, called uh, Flourishing. It's, it's based on the book of Ephesians, called Flourishing in Life with God. And, and this is what God wants for us. God wants us to flourish. And if you were going to give a definition, you can look up Webster's if you want to, but if you're going to give a definition of flourishing, what would that be? Like just, what, what does that word mean? You can shout out some, some answers. Hold the mic closer. Got it. Okay. Sorry, what was that? Progress. Progress. Yeah, there's growth when you imagine something flourishing. It's, it's moving. Thriving. Prosper. Abundance. Yeah. Growth. Yeah. Life. Yep. These are all great. Great definitions, and, and so many more. Like, it's, it's a picture, it's like an agricultural term. It's like a plant that is, is growing and full of life, and then it is, it's bearing fruit, right? It's fruitful. And, and this is a picture, I think, throughout Scripture of, of what God wants for us as his people. And flourishing is what happens when our whole selves are rooted in the soil of God's presence. I mean, this is, this is like where flourishing comes from. The flourishing that we want, it comes from when our whole selves, our whole being, is rooted in the soil of God's presence, and we're drawing our life, and we're drawing um, our meaning and significance from, from him. And I want to look at two, just real quick, before we get to Ephesians, just two pictures of flourishing, one from the Old Testament and one from the words of Jesus. Psalm 1 the, the very first psalm in your Bible says this, first three verses. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight, like whose joy is in the law of the Lord or in the way of the Lord and meditates on his law day and night. That person is like, now, see this picture of flourishing, that person is like a tree it's planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever they do prospers. So it's the roots of our lives. Our whole being is like planted deep in the soil of God's presence. This river that's imagined here is God's ever-flowing presence toward us. This is, this is flourishing that God wants for us, growth and fruitfulness. And then Jesus, in his own words, in John 15, he says, I'm the vine. And you're the branches. If you remain, or that word is sometimes translated abide, if you like stay connected to me, Jesus says, and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, and here's the truth, you, you can do nothing. And so God wants us to flourish, wants us to thrive, wants us to be fruitful in his presence. But sometimes along the way we get stuck. And like sometimes on our, our journey, it feels like, if, if I'm honest, I don't know that I'm flourishing. 
So I'm going to ask you today, like, where are you between, um, you know, I am, I am stuck and it feels like I am just floundering, or on the other side, I'm flourishing in life with God. Like, I, I don't know that I could experience any more of the fullness of God's presence in my life. And you were going to sort of put yourself in that place between floundering and flourishing. Where, where would you be? You don't have to respond to that, but think about that. Because, like, we can, we can kind of, I think, get stuck in places on the journey. And we can just settle to say, like, well, maybe this is it. Like, maybe this is all there is. And, um, you know, this is what my life with God looks like. And, and I, think that's, I think that's a real problem. And I think that's, a, like, the encouragement is to say, don't. Like, don't get stuck. Don't settle for, um, for just like sort of floundering in life with God, that there is a, a deeper connection with God that is possible. Now, there is a, as we start this series, like, I just want to give this roadmap for flourishing. This is a, is a very simple, like, and in, in throughout scripture and throughout, you know, proven throughout history, people um, for thousands and thousands of years, this is like a, a very simple roadmap for flourishing. And it begins. Um, on the personal side, with what we could call regeneration. Pastors like alliterated words, so all but one is an R word, right? So regeneration. This is what happens when a person says, I, I believe in Jesus. Like, we, we feel conviction from the Holy Spirit because of our sins, and, and we, all of a sudden, we, we wake up to the fact that we're moving away from Christ the way God intended us, and we turn around, we, we turn toward Jesus, and we surrender our lives to him. We receive the good news that Jesus gave his life for us to bring us into his family. We feel the acceptance. And what happens is we experience new life. Like that's the promise of the gospel is like when we turn toward Christ, we experience his life and his presence. And we're filled with his spirit. And his spirit begins to work in us and we are regenerated. Like we're born from above. This is a, like an unbelievable promise that God gives us. Those being baptized today have experienced this, this regeneration, and baptism is a symbol of it, this like first step toward flourishing. But then we begin this process of, of restoration, right? Baptism or regeneration, it isn't the end of the road. It's actually the beginning of it. And so regeneration is, is what happens as we start learning to walk in, uh, excuse me, I said did I say restoration? Yeah. It's what happens when we, all of a sudden, the Spirit is now not outside of us, drawing us to Jesus, but the Spirit is actually inside of us, changing us from the inside out. The Spirit begins restoring our life as we begin following Jesus, and he, he moves us from, from despair to hope, and we begin to experience more and more of what God has in store for us. And then we move to Reformation, where now we're like, we're learning to walk with the Spirit. We're putting off the old self, like the sinful nature, those patterns of sin and destructive behaviors, and we're learning to put those off and to walk with the Spirit, in step with the Spirit, and, and we're learning to be remade into the image of Christ. Are you with me? Like, this is the process that we're all on, right? Regeneration to restoration to reformation. Now, these all happen on a personal level. This is every one of us. This is like what God wants for every single one of us. But again, like we said earlier, it's not just personal. It's we're together in this. So the next thing that happens, um, and it's so beautiful when it happens, is renewal. 
And renewal isn't just personal, but it's what happens in relationships. When there's like a community um, of faith that, that this like reformation it begins to gain a head of steam in a group of people, and people start to get their hearts set on fire for the presence of God, and renewal sort of sweeps through a congregation or a, a spiritual family. And it's, it's such a beautiful thing when this happens. And then it moves toward revival. And revival is um, what Jonathan Edwards, a, a great revival preacher, um, you know, of a couple hundred years ago, Jonathan Edwards said it this way. He says, a revival is just the accelerated normal work of the Holy Spirit. Like revival, the revivals throughout history, throughout biblical history and throughout, you know, recorded history are just the Spirit chooses to do in maybe a day or a couple of days what would sometimes have taken years. Like you read stories of, of what has happened in revivals throughout the past that like people just become conscious of God before anybody says a word. It's just like the presence of God is so, is so um, evident. There was a story that came out of the, the Asbury Awakening. Do you guys remember that this, this spring? What happened? It was like 15 days of nonstop worship at, at Asbury. These college students just said, we're not leaving. Like the presence of God is so beautiful here. And people came from all over the world to it. There was, there was one story. I was listening to one of the, one of the leaders who was like kind of leading in the prayer movement that was behind that. And he said he was on the prayer team, and there was this young woman who, who was, grew up in the Hindu faith. And she came forward, and there had only been worship. There hadn't been a sermon yet at all. And she just has tears in her eyes, and she's like, Jesus, like, he's, he's better than I ever could have imagined. And he's like, you, you've met him, haven't you? And she's just like, just like weeping. And he's like, okay, like, and, and you want to receive him. Like, is there anything you want to, like, repent of? And she's like, just everything. Like, there was no sermon, there was nobody speaking, it was just Jesus encountering the hearts of people. This is what happens in revival movements. And, and like, we have documented, recorded history, right? History of these things happening throughout the past. Um, and something in my heart says, like, why not? Like, why not now? Why not? Like, among us, why not in our day? Why not in our culture? And then the, the last piece is awakening. And this is, this is, it spreads beyond the church to a culture itself being transformed. Now, what's our current reality? Like, not, not LifeBridge, but just like the church in general, especially here in the U.S. Which one of these would you say? I would, I would throw up another word, and it's the word retreat. And it's, it's painful. Um... It's not hard to, to hear stories of just the church in decline. Churches, churches closing, the church in decline. There is so much bad news. But the good news and the promise is that God moves where there is a desperate desire. He does. Like, he moves in our lives. Like, regeneration happens in our lives when there is a desperate desire to say, God, I can't do this on my own anymore, and I need you. And I think this happens on a grand scale, too, that God moves when there is desperate desire, when the church says, we can't whiteboard our way out of this. We can't strategize our way out of this. God, we need you to move. And so the call of followers of Jesus today is don't give up. But press in, press into God's presence, because we live in a moment called, I, 
what some are calling the great opportunity. To say, like, I am blessed to live at a time in the greatest spiritual decline in the last hundred years. How many of you would say that? Like, I'm living at a time in, like, the greatest spiritual decline in the last hundred years where, where, you know, like, because it's a, such a great opportunity. Because the movements of God always come at a time when people are, are desperate for something real, something true. And this is what God promises in another time of, of great spiritual decline in the scriptures. In, in Isaiah 44, when it looked like everything was lost, this is what God says. I will pour out, my, I will pour out water to quench your thirst. Man, you're thirsty? I will pour out water to quench your thirst. And I will irrigate your parched lands. There are places in your life and your culture that feel dry and parched and lifeless. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your children. And they will thrive like watered grass, like willows on a riverbank. Some will proudly proclaim, I belong to the Lord. And I, I think God wants us to have a vision of flourishing for our own lives, for our households, but, but also for our culture, for like our church for the church beyond just life bridge, like churches in a community, and for what, what might happen if God's presence just sort of invades the culture that we're part of. Anybody want that? And I think it begins by having a true view of God. Having a true view of God, I think, is, is the start. Before we talk about ourselves at all, I think it's important to just start with God. Would you do me a favor and just close your eyes for a second? You can trust me. I'm not going to throw anything at you. You just close your eyes. And imagine God. Just bring um, as, as, as high resolution image as you can of God into your mind. And just pay attention to it. Like, okay, what is God like? What do you see? And again, you don't have to share this, but just, just hold this in your mind. What do you see? And describe what you see in as much detail as you can. Is God, is God close or is God distant? And how do you feel as you imagine God? Do you find yourself wanting to move closer or, or kind of moving away? Are you filled with love and warmth or fear, awe? Okay, so you can open your eyes. Now, this little exercise is so incredibly important. There was a, a pastor, um, A.W. Tozer, who said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Let that sink in for a second. If that's true, that's, that's remarkable. That the most important thing about any one of us is the image of God we have in our minds. It shapes everything. What you think about when you think about God is the, is the center of your life. And one of the reasons why is because, like, we become what we behold. Like, we, um, there's, there's a, a guy, Timothy Jennings, who, who wrote this book called The God-Shaped Brain. And he, he said that um, when people have an image of God in their mind that is, like, angry and vengeful and violent... Those people become, what do you think? Angry and vengeful and violent. It's like there's something about holding an image of God like that in your mind where God is, God is you know, he, <clears throat> he's really just like waiting to punish us. 
And if you have an image of God like that in your mind, that God is just like, he's just waiting to punish you, it will, that fear will drive you to actually become a more angry and vengeful person, reactionary. But if the image of God, this is what he says in the book, the image of God, if, if you hold an image of God in your mind that is love, like, like true love, not like the, the word love as it is like sort of defined in our culture, like sometimes we talk about love or we think about love as like a doting grandparent who can't say no to their grandchild's request for candy. It's like, yeah, you can just have as much. Now, I'm not talking about anybody in this room. I'm not sure what happens to grandparents like in that generation between when their kids are little and grandkids, but it's like grandparents are just like, no, you just have as much candy as you want. It's going to rot your teeth and, you know, make you feel sick, but, you know, I love you, so I'm going to give it to you. That's not what God is. Like, love is not that, right? Love is, is gritty and real and love. Um, when you love somebody and they're walking toward a cliff, you don't just say, I love you, I'll support you, you just keep walking toward the cliff, right? You love somebody and you're like, I... I can't let you do this. Like, right? Love is, is gritty and it's real and it's honest. And when we hold an image of God of love like that, true love in our minds, all of a sudden it, it makes us more loving. Like the fear is gone. The, the anger, the reaction is gone. And we become people who respond with compassion and, and empathy in the world. So the image of God you have in your minds, it is the most important thing about you. Now, the tragedy is that um, Baylor University did a study a number of years ago and just kind of trying to get at this. Like, how do average Americans, and this was just Americans, how do they think about God? And the vast majority, over 70%, had an image of God that was other than love. So the big portion thought God was like a dictator. God is just controlling and and just wanting power over you. Um, about co- a quarter of the people thought God was distant or uninvolved. Hey, God might be out there somewhere, but he, he doesn't care about my life. Right? He's distant or uninvolved. Uh, about 16% um, saw God as just like very critical and harsh, just kind of somebody who is always on your case and hard to please. Less than 25% of people actually had an image of God that was true. It was, it was love. And so, um, people, if, if people are going to, to just like search themselves and say, okay, what is, what is God like? Most of the time, what we're going to do is we're going to look inside of ourselves and we're going to ask the question, well, this is what I would be like if I was God, right? That's what humans have done throughout human history. So, um, you have the, like the Greek gods, right? This was the world of the Bible, was they were, were kind of up against, especially the New Testament, they were up against these, these Greek gods, and, and, and the Greek god that, that, you know, was kind of in charge of all of them was, anybody recognize this guy? Zeus, right? These are sculptures of Zeus, um, this, this sort of ancient Greek god of gods, and you know what he's holding in his right hand? A lightning bolt. What's he going to do with that lightning bolt? It's going to zap you, right? Thunderbolts and lightning. Very, very frightening. This is, um, I, I admit, that is not a very intimidating lightning bolt, but that's what that is. And, and so, like, most of us, we, when we think about God, we, we think about something like Zeus, that God is kind of grumpy and, and angry and ready to zap us. Uh, and this was my story growing up. I knew God loved me, but I just didn't think God liked me very much. And like most of my, my life with God and most of my prayers were just apologizing a lot. 
and kind of walking on eggshells because I didn't want to make God mad. And this is a big problem because our passion for God, our desire for God will never go beyond our vision of how good God really is. If you struggle to be passionate for God, as we've been talking about desire over the last couple of weeks, if you struggle to actually desire, my hunch is that you have an image of God in your mind that is less good than God really is. Because your passion for God will never outrun, it will never go beyond your vision of the goodness of God in your minds. And this is, so like, don't settle for some man-made God. Don't settle for some like projection of God. <clears throat> and the good news is that we don't have to do this. The good news that, is that we don't have to settle for some man-made God like Zeus or in, in Ephesus, the, the god that they worshipped was, was a goddess named Artemis. Have you heard that name before? So in Ephesus, where, where this letter is written to a church in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul writes, and, and in the backdrop of this letter, and again, we're separated by 2,000 years of history, so we don't get this, but it's certainly in the backdrop of this letter, is the Temple of Artemis. Um, years before, uh, next slide, uh, next slide, uh, there's, yeah, some other... So this is the Temple of Artemis. Uh, in Ephesus, there was this meteorite that fell, and people assumed that it was like a message from the gods, and it was a, itself, this meteorite, was a statue of the goddess Artemis. And so they built this massive temple. This temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was like Ephesus was the center of the worship of Artemis, and Artemis was the goddess of fertility. So, hey, if you want to be fruitful, like if you want your crops to be fruitful, or if you want to have children, like you would, you would come and you would make a sacrifice, and you would worship at the temple of Artemis, and then, you know, Artemis was going to bless you. And the problem is that Artemis was just another, like, man-made god, it was just this other projection of, like, what human beings think God must be like, but it was a big deal to the people of Ephesus. In Acts 19, you get the story of how the church started in Ephesus. Do you know the story? Paul goes in, and he goes into this culture that is just surrounded by the temple of Artemis, and he starts preaching the good news of Jesus. He says, hey, there's a way to like, you know, to actually know what God is like, and it's in Jesus Christ, and people begin turning toward Jesus, and it causes this uproar in the city. They, they storm into this theater, this massive like amphitheater, and it says they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, Acts 9, verse 19, verse 34. This is a big deal, right? This false God, this, this um, God that is not a true vision of, of what God is actually like, had captivated people's minds. But the good news is that we don't have to settle for a man-made God. Because we have the good news of God who has made man. That's almost like a pastor quote that's worth repeating, right? We don't have to settle for a man-made God because we have the good news of God who has made man in Jesus. And this is what Ephesians chapter 1 says. And this is what the promise of, of uh, the New Testament is. If you were, the, the verses we read from Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 to 11 there's one phrase that's repeated again and again and again. Two words on the screen. In him. Did I lose you somewhere? It's in yellow on the screen. Ephesians 1, if you're going to read it and, and just pay attention, like what, 
What is Paul trying to get across? Like, what is repeated here? It's the words, in him, in Christ, through Christ. It's repeated nine times in these verses. And the message that Paul's trying to get across is like, God is like Jesus. And so when you look at Jesus, you are looking at the fullness of God. Did you know this? There's this great story in um, Jesus with his disciples in, in John 14. And one of the disciples, bless him, his name's Philip, he, he's like, Jesus, okay, I'm paraphrasing. He's like, Jesus, you're great, but would you show us the Father? Do you hear what he's asking? Like, Jesus, like, we get it. Like, we get, you know, how you are healing and restoring and, and, and calling people to turn from their sin and put their trust in you and you're setting up your kingdom and all that. That's wonderful. But God, the real, or Jesus, the real question is, show us the Father. What is the Father like? And here's Jesus' response. Like, let this sink in. Jesus says, if you have seen me, Philip, you have seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? I mean, this is such revolutionary stuff that Jesus is the image of, of God in Colossians. And there are so many verses we could look at in the New Testament, but just one more, Colossians 2, 9, 2 verse 9. It says this, in Christ, this is, is Jesus, the Messiah, in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now, any like English teachers in here? Christina, what do you teach? Any, kind of some English? Any other English majors, English teachers in here? No? Good. Okay, that won't mess this up too badly then. Um, this is a triple superlative. I thought that was a figure skating move when I first heard that. A triple superlative. This is like Paul who writes this letter in Colossians. He's grasping for language to make this connection that God looks like Jesus. And he says this, he's like all. It's like the whole of God, like not just part of God, but all of God. And then he uses this word, the fullness. And the, the word in Greek is pleroma. It is like the superabundance, the, the sum total of all that makes God God is in Jesus. And then he says the deity. This is the God's essence, God's very being. All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. How much of God do you see in Jesus? All of him. Um, all of him. This is why Thomas, uh, T.F. Torin says this, there is no God behind the back of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther famously said, to seek God outside of Christ is the devil. It sounds like a very Martin Luther thing to say, right? It's like Jesus is the fullness of the Father. If you have seen him, you've seen the Father. Are you with me? So if, does the image of God in your mind look like Jesus? Does it look like Jesus? Serving his disciples. Does it look like Jesus as a prophet who is like speaking good news, even to people who don't want to hear it? Does it look like Jesus like giving his life away on the cross, like willingly taking on the sins of the whole world, even those who are crucifying him, and saying, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing? Does the image of God in your mind look like Jesus? Because if not, then the image of God in your mind needs to change. This is the most important thing about you. This is what God is like. Just look. We're going to spend the last couple of minutes here just looking right through Ephesians because having a true view of God is so important. In these, these verses, verses 3 to 11, look at, look at how God is described. 
like you, you can take notes on this if this is, is, this is hard to, to sort of grasp. But this is verse 3. Paul says, like, God loves to bless us. God loves to just pour out his blessings on his people. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is what God is like. You know what he does? He just says, you are all, if you have like surrendered your life to Jesus, you are already blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You could not have more than, than you already do in Jesus. Like this is what God is like. He just pours out his blessings on on people. This is what he loves to do. Verse 4, God chooses us. God chooses us. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Before God like makes the world, he dreams up these people he's going to call to himself. For God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Um, as a kid, I was, I was not gifted with like natural coordination. And um, I, I struggled. In fact, I, this, I don't even know why I'm sharing this. There was a, it was like therapy time with the pastor. Um, I had, yeah, I had some, some issue that was like dyslexia, but the two hemispheres of my brain wouldn't work together very well. And so I went to see, like there was like this eye doctor that was actually just down the road over here by Softies. I, I remember as a kid, I grew up close to Berlin, but came here and, and kind of helped me with some coordination stuff so I could learn to read. But I remember going to school and, um, and getting picked like dead last for sports. Do you guys know what that feels like? I know, you're laughing. You can laugh, it's funny. Um, getting picked last, like being the one who's like not chosen. That's, that's painful, especially, especially as a kid. Like we know what it's like to be, to be unchosen or to be chosen as like a last resort. And, and that's a painful thing. And yet this is what God is like. God chooses us. Like you are chosen. He sees you and he loves you and he, he, he chooses you. And he chooses you to be holy and blameless in his sight, to live for a bigger purpose than just your own pleasure, to live for something more fulfilling than just sort of passing time. He chose you in love. Verse 5, God is a loving father who adopts us into his family. God is a, in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. God is a loving father who adopts us into his family. And it says he's adopted us to sonship. And the, why it's sonship there and not like childhood or whatever is because only sons had a right to inherit the estate. And so this word, God has adopted us to sonship, that this is like way radical. Men, women, um, the old, the young, you are all adopted to sonship, that you have status in God's family, that you are an heir of the kingdom of God, these, um, the, the goodness of God, that God is this loving father who adopts us. And it says it was his great pleasure to do this. It was like he took so much joy in extending this this offer of adoption into his family. We were with friends of ours in Kansas who adopted two sons, and we were with them on their gotcha day. Right? Have, you ever, have you ever done that? Maybe some of you were adopted or you know, have adopted children in your family. Like, like that gotcha day. It is so much joy to say like that process of like going through adoption and, and the process and, you know, hoping and praying that this child would, would be ours and we would get the chance to raise this child and, and share just like love with them. Like, can you imagine God the Father doing that for us? It was his great pleasure 
to adopt us into his family. God is gloriously gracious, verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace that he has freely given us in the one he loves. God is gloriously gracious to his people. Verse 7, God is our redeemer. Our redeemer. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace. The word redemption, it's, a, it's a, like a, an economic word. It means to buy back. And it was the idea behind the word redemption is that somebody who, like let's say, um, in, in this day, in Paul's day, you know, had made some maybe really bad financial decisions, or maybe they just had a run of bad luck. And they ended up having, they, they leveraged everything else they had, and they had to finally sell themselves into like indentured servitude. Right? So they're a slave. And the idea here behind redemption is somebody comes along and pays the price for you to redeem you, to buy you back, and then to restore you to freedom. Like, God is our redeemer. Like, this is what he does for human beings, right? That, that we, uh, because of sin, because of sin in our hearts, we're like, we were enslaved to evil and to these patterns of sin in our life that drug us down and to, to the evil one. And Jesus gave his life for us, and he brought us back and bought us back from evil and sin and death and hell, and he gave us freedom forever. They're like, this is Exodus language. God is our redeemer. Verse 7, God is rich in grace. God is rich in grace. He's never going to run out of grace for your life. You ever think, like, man, I, maybe I'm on the last little bit of God's grace. I've used so much. You ever, you ever worry about that? Like maybe God is getting tired of giving me grace. And the truth is God is rich in grace. He's never going to run out of grace in our lives. And not only does God have riches of grace, but he gives it lavishly. Verse 8, God lavishly gives grace to us. He lavished it on us. God is not stingy with grace. Verses 9 through 10, um, God is unifying. That he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Do you feel fragmented in your life ever? You ever just feel like, and maybe, maybe it's because of sin, that just like there are so many broken, jagged pieces in my life and I'm not sure if they can all be put back together. Or maybe you just feel fragmented because like, you're just going a hundred different directions all the time. And God's like, vision is to bring unity to that. Like what God wants to do is he wants to pick up all of those pieces and to give them unity, but it happens in Christ. Like the unity that we long for in our lives, the healing, bringing these broken pieces back together is in Christ. God is going to bring all things together. He is, God is unifying. Last one is this, verse 11. God is in charge. God is in charge. In him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works everything out in conformity with the purpose of his will. That God has this will, and he promises that he is going to move things toward the completion of his will to bring unity in heaven and on earth of all things under Christ. Like this is, you know, in a world where it just seems like, wow, like what is the solid ground to stand on? Like where do we find something that's true and isn't going to just be taken away from us? God's 
um, God's promise that he is in charge? Like, is that only solid ground? That God is in charge? Um, And I'll just share this, like, personally, I don't like to use the phrase, God is in control. You know, people say that a lot, like, God is in control, and I get it. Like, we take a lot of comfort from that, And, and in a certain sense, absolutely. Like, I affirm that wholeheartedly. But what often we hear when we say God is in control is that God is controlling all things. Like that um, we think about God in control, like God is like a computer programmer that is is setting up the the algorithm and he is the one who's making everything happen in the world. So so sin and, and brokenness and accidents and storms and all of that, like God is the one who is doing all of those things. Now, if you were to say God is in control in the Bible, like, you know, back 3,000 years, the image of God was not a computer programmer or somebody who was building a machine and in control of that machine. The image was a shepherd. What does it mean for a shepherd to be in control of his flock of sheep? I mean, is a shepherd walking by each sheep and saying, okay, like, take a step here and then this blade of grass for you here? And Like, no, what's a shepherd doing? The shepherd's leading, like, he's in control in the fact that he's leading the sheep, but the sheep have a lot of freedom, like a freedom to go here or there, but the shepherd is in charge of the flock. He's protecting it. He's leading it to green pastures. Are are you with me? Like God is in charge. He is in charge of our lives. He is in charge of the world. And when you trust him, you can trust his faithfulness and his, his power, and he is sovereign. He is in charge, and he has promised that he will work everything out in conformity with his purpose and will, and it is a good purpose and will. How are we doing? God is better than you could ever imagine. This is the mystery revealed to us in Christ. God is better than you could ever imagine. However great your imagination is, it's not good enough. And we can spend the rest of our lives just exploring the depths and the riches and the goodness of who God is. So what is your next step in flourishing with life with God? Like, what is it? Maybe, maybe to begin with, it's just the, the image of God you have in your mind, it doesn't look like Jesus. And so you need to conform it to Jesus. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that that you begin to say, okay, God, help me see you as you really are. Help me see clearly as you really are. So maybe like one of your steps is just get to know Jesus. And how do you do that? Well, first, you just like encounter Jesus through the Bible. So read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Don't settle for what you think Jesus is like or what you imagine Jesus might be like or what somebody told you Jesus is like. Like, get to know Jesus through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these accounts of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. There's a great Bible reading plan. On, do you guys have the YouVersion app on your phones? You can get it. And there's a, it's called the Gospels in 90 Days. It will just take you through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, like one chapter a day. They're like little videos from the Bible Project. Did I say Bible Project app? I'm sorry. I meant the YouVersion app. Maybe I said that. Okay. It's a great way to just get to know Jesus. Read the Gospels. Immerse yourself in the life of Jesus. Um, what, what's your next step toward flourishing? Maybe it's regeneration, like just surrendering to him. Maybe it's reformation, like just learning, learning how to give up these old patterns of life and, and to be filled with the Spirit and to walk with the Spirit. Like maybe there are patterns of your life that you know, like this isn't who I am anymore. 
and it's, it's damaging to me, and it's, it's hurting me, and it's hurting the people I love. And so maybe it's, it's surrendering that and, and like just asking for help from your church family who's here to help you. Maybe it's praying for renewal. Like maybe like God is putting a passion on your heart to pray for renewal in the church. Like to, to pray for it, to see God, to trust that he wants to bring renewal and he wants to bring revival. Um, so whatever your next step is, I, I just ask you to sort of solidify that in your mind. Like what, what is God asking you to do? And um, it'd be great to tell somebody, like just to tell somebody like, okay, I, I feel like this is the next step. It's not a huge leap, but this is the next step toward flourishing in life with God. So God, we thank you so much that this is, this is who you really are. That you revealed yourself to us in Jesus, your son. That you, it's like the clouds parted and you let us see you and experience you in, in the brilliance of your glory. That you, Jesus, came from the Father full of grace and truth. That no one has ever seen God, but the one who is in closest relationship with the Father has revealed him, has made him known. Jesus, you, you are you are so good. You captivate our hearts. You are, are loving and kind and gracious and forgiving and redeeming. And yet your love, God, it, it calls us to trust you and to follow you and to make you the center of our lives and to turn from our sin and to, to turn toward you. So, Lord, I just pray, God, wherever we are, we are all at different places on our spiritual journey, and yet you are with each one of us. Your spirit is at work in every one of our hearts. And so lead us in this next step. God, whatever it is, God, we want to seek you more deeply. God, we, want, we don't want to flounder in our life with you. We want, we want to flourish in your presence with our whole selves rooted deep, deep in the soil of your presence. We love you, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you.